If you recollect last week's message, uh, and the weeks kind of leading up to this, we've been seeing how this lame beggar who had been lame from birth was seated at the gate of the temple, and as people were just going there at the hour of prayer, everybody passing by on this particular day, Peter and John stopped, approached him, and said, I I don't have any money to give you. Gold and silver I I don't have, but what I do I, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And he seizes that man by the hand and he raises him up. And as he's being lifted up, his feet and his ankles strengthen. And if you can imagine, this man is leaping for joy. Uh, I can see him like this gazelle in the field, just hopping and just overjoyed. And as this is unfolding, he, he's going into the temple and he's praising God and everybody around is looking at this man and wondering what had happened. It is a memorable and phenomenal occurrence. Something that everybody there would have remembered, I think, for the rest of their lives. And after this happens, uh, Peter stands up in the midst of the group and he begins to share another message. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 11 of chapter 3. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, that he is referring to the lame beggar who was healed, he's clinging to him, and all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So now everybody's gathering, and, and this lame man and Peter and John are in the center of this kind of huge huddle of people. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted. To you, But put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses, and on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health. In the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that ye acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ should suffer, He is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets have spoken, who have spoken from Samuel to his successors onward, also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is how he finishes. For you first 
God raised up His servant Jesus and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Amen. This occurrence, this man being healed, the throng of people surrounding and asking these questions, what happened to him? And Peter's reply here, I think, is in many, many ways absurd. Uh, if we were to find ourselves in this particular setting that day, being in the shoes of Peter or John, I think there would have been a mix of emotions for the most of us if we were to stand in their shoes. And the, the, the foundational thought of this message is this, that heaven will be filled with people who don't deserve it. And what do I mean by that? That there is salvation and it is unworthy, that we are all, in a sense, unworthy to be saved. Now, for those of you who like sociology, um, I do. I like to kind of observe people and see how they interact. I was never a, a major in that, but I do appreciate that. I mean, I'm the type of person that would go to a mall, just sit on a bench and just look at people, especially during Christmas time. It's great, right? You see just the, the, the differences in people, how they're dressed, how they walk, who they walk with, how they interact with the people they're walking with. It is quite entertaining, actually. Try it. Just sit on a bench for 30 minutes in a very, very busy place and just look at people. There is a sociologist slash uh, communication scholar by the name of uh, Rogers. Uh, and this man, Roger, Everett Roger, he came up with what many of us know as the innovation adoption curve. And in this curve, what he is referring to is that when there is a change, that when there is some sort of a new idea presented to the masses, it is not adopted by everybody or the majority in the beginning. And so something new, a, a new message, a new product, a new idea. Whenever this is presented to the general public, there is a curve that he saw in terms of how it was adopted by people. And if you see on your sermon cards, you'll find that the first segment of people, the first 2.5% that he said that adopted these new ideas or things, they were called the innovators. Okay, and they were the ones that were like, you know, they were the game changers. They were the ones that, that saw way out in the horizon and said, this is what's going to be mainstream. And they, they grappled on to things that nobody else saw in the beginning. They were the innovators, the first two and a half percent. Okay? And the second group he called the early adopters. These were the 12.5% of people in the general population that still saw it as a new idea. It was not accepted by the general public, and yet they believed in it, and they grabbed a hold of it, and they adopted it into their lives, even though it was not mainstream. And after that first 16%, the innovators and the early adopters kind of proved the concept. Right? They used the new product. Do you, do you remember when online shopping first came about that you were afraid that, that your identity or your credit card information would be stolen? Or think about when smartphones first came up. Do people want to fork over this amount of money? Will this take off? Whenever there was a new idea, a new thing that was happening, think about online grocery shopping. Do you trust that they're going to give you the freshest produce and things like that? Right? Whatever the new idea is, the innovators and the early adopters prove the concept that it's worthwhile. And after the concept is proven, then you have the early majority, that 34%. Okay. 
And this is the group of people that now it begins to go mainstream. They're like, okay, I see this group of people and they're beginning to use it and I see the clear benefits of it. Now I'll buy in. And they're called the early majority. And after the early majority, then you cross what you call the tipping point, right? That, that crucial point where now all of a sudden there's enough word of mouth where it begins to grow on its own. Where now if you don't have the product or you have not adopted the idea, you're kind of left out because everybody else is doing it. It's kind of like when, when maybe like different social medias kind of came up and about whether it was way back when, when Facebook or the different social media platforms had come up. All of a sudden, when everybody begins to use it and you're the only one not, you're like, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll start now. Right? And that's the late majority because now you've crossed that tipping point and now if you don't have it, you're kind of shortchanged a little bit. And then on the tail end, you got the laggards, the ones that are like the old traditionalists, you know, oh, this is those young guns there. You know, they always got it wrong. And what are they doing? They're corrupting good, pure ideas and things like that. And they're the laggards that like, you know, at the way on the tail and everybody's doing it. And they've been doing it for years, right? And they finally jump on. And as I see this, why do I give you this example or illustration of this adoption curve? Because there is a crucial line right here. This is that, that, that crucial point where it begins to be proven and now the masses begin to accept it. And I give you this analogy because I want to kind of superimpose this idea upon first century Christians. And as I look at first century Christians, I see the, the, the initial 12 as being the innovators. Jesus, fresh on the scene, coming and says, follow me. And they're like, you know what? All right, I'll follow you. And there weren't a lot of people that followed. It was just a small set of people that said, I'll buy into this right from the get-go. And they were the first group. And then what I see as the, that early adopter group is the other disciples of Jesus, outside of those 12 apostles. They were the group of 70 or 120 that we see gathered, that were praying in that upper room. And that was the group that Jesus ministered to, that stayed close to Him, that followed Him. And they could have been considered disciples. This was the group of people in which Matthias was taken out of. It was that, that group that began to grow beyond the twelve, but still Jesus was alive and He was ruffling a lot of religious feathers. And this line, I see, is kind of like his death and ascension. Now Jesus had died. Everybody was sad, right? This early group was sad. But then he rose from the dead and hope was given to this early group of apostles and disciples. And as hope was given, a commission was sent out to now go to all the earth and make disciples of them, teaching what Jesus had said to them. And after he had ascended, then we really see the start of the book of Acts. Now these apostles who had received the Holy Spirit, this group of disciples that had received the Holy Spirit, and people were being healed. And this lame beggar that was being healed was one of the first miraculous things that was happening and the first major thing that is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so now, as this lame man was healed, and Peter stands up and he says, it is by Jesus, the guy that you crucified. 
It was by him and faith in him that he is made well. And then people now are like, all right, I see it in front of my eyes. All right, he died. And right, I believe you, he rose again. And this man is made well by faith in this name. And now thousands are being added to the church. Those thousands were not added when Jesus was preaching when he was alive. And as we see these thousands being added in the book of Acts, I, I really see them as that early majority. I kind of see them on the, on the other side of this line, but at the beginning point of it. They're now saying, okay, you've proven it. I, I believe you. Now we'll jump on board. And now we'll begin to follow and believe in this name Jesus because we really can't refute it. This man is, is made well. I've seen him all of these days and years and I know his condition and now he's made well. And you're telling me that that man, Jesus, who ascended and that he ministered. And I remember hearing about him that it is in that name that he's made well. Okay, now I'll come on board. And I see the followers of the book of Acts as that first wave of people in that early majority. And that's kind of why I give you that. But I want you to understand not just that they were in this particular group, but I want you to begin to see things from the lens of the earlier groups. Of Peter and John. And to give you another illustration, let me share the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Jesus was teaching, and he said, there was this owner. He goes out into the marketplace at the crack of dawn, and he hires a group of people. And he says, will you work my field? And if you do so for one day, which is a 12-hour workday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., if you will work one day, I will give you a day's wage. And in Jesus' time, a day's wage was one denarius. Okay, one denarius. And so this early group of people at 6 a.m. said, all right, we came here because we want to work today. We're day laborers. And so they were hired, and they were brought to the field at 6 a.m., and they're working right from... The first thing in the morning. And this owner, at 9 a.m., he goes back to the marketplace, right? Sorry, that should be, that should be 9 a.m. I'm sorry about that. Uh, uh, well, he goes back at, at 9 a.m., and he goes back, and he continues to go at each successive time. And he goes at noon, and he goes at 3, and he goes again at 5. And to these latter groups... He doesn't say how much he'll pay them. He says, you know what? You guys have been here. Why don't you just come and work my field and I'll give you what you you deserve, basically. And so all of these other groups, they said, okay, we've been here. They were probably there from early in the morning and they haven't gotten any work that day. And so when the owner came back, all right, we'll work your field for three quarters of a day or half a day or a third of a day. And this last group, they're they're only going to have to work one hour. And so these workers are all brought to the field and ding, 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 6 p.m. comes and the owner goes to the foreman. I want you to gather all of the workers and I want you to pay them their wage. And I want you to start with the last group and I want you to give them a day's wage, a denarius. And can you imagine this entire group is assembled for a second and that first group, that 6 a.m. group, they're like, they're like you know, smiling a little bit, right? Because when they went out at 6 a.m., they were promised one denarius, Right? And this 5 p.m. group, they only worked one hour and they're getting paid this amount. And they're like, wait a minute, we worked 12 times longer than this group. I'm waiting for my payday a little bit. And these other groups start to get paid and they all get paid a denarius. 
And as they're getting paid a denarius, this first group is thinking, yes, money is coming my way. And when it gets to that 6 a.m. group, that foreman gives them the very thing they were promised from the beginning of the day. And they're up in arms. And they're thinking, this is, this is not right. You have made this last group who only worked one hour as equals to us, who bore the scorching burden and heat of the entire day. And how can you give us just one denarius? And this landowner gives a very appropriate response. Can't I do with what is mine what I want? Why are you envious of this group? Haven't you got what I promised you, what you thought you would get, the entire time that you were working this day. What's the issue here? And as I see this particular thing unfolding, what is happening is that there is a plea for fairness. It's not fair. It's not fair that you have made a worker of an hour equal to us who have worked at 12. And we've done the exact same work. It's not like in that hour they were doing more work. It is... The same work, and they only did it for an hour, and you have now made them equal to us. It is not fair. If you want a demonstration on fairness, just try to hand out candy to children. Right? You'll know exactly what fairness is. right? You'll know fairness when somebody who comes into a company after you does the exact same work and gets promoted before you. You will say, that's not fair. When somebody does the same work for a shorter period of time, and they get apparently better rewards, this thing, this protest comes up and we begin to say, that's not fair. And I give you these two illustrations of that innovation curve or this particular parable to say that from Peter and John's perspective, Peter is standing up in front of a group of people and this is what he says, you guys are the group that delivered up Jesus. You guys are the group that when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, you said, no, don't release him, release the murderer. You guys are that group. And now at this time, he's preaching to them with a different, not a, a judgmental tone. He's only reminding them of what they had done to Jesus. And as I see this group, in my estimation, if anybody understood any sense of fairness, it was not fair for these people to be saved. The very group of people that said, don't deliver Jesus, give us this murderer, kill that guy. And this message now comes to them because this group is now convinced that this man was made well by the name of Jesus. There is something in here that really begins to just come out and say, it's not fair. And in verse 26, if you look here, verse 26 of our passage, Peter says to this group, for you first, God raised up his servant. Does that seem absurd in any way? I mean, late-coming bandwagon laggards should not get the same things, let alone the first things. Right? And they're getting, and Peter's like, for you, you are, when God raised up his son Jesus, he thought of you first. 
And that, to me, in a sense, is reminiscent of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, that this father had two kids, and the younger one says, you know what, I just want to live life a little bit. Dad, give me what's mine, and he goes out and squanders all of it, as we know. And as he's eating with pigs, thinking about the days that he was with his father, He's rehearsing, what should I do? I want, to get, I want to go back. This is horrible. I made a mistake. I'm just going to grovel at my dad's feet and just beg for forgiveness and just to be asked not to be a son. I just want to be a worker in your land. And so he's just wrestling with this and he finally draws enough courage to go back and crawl to the father. And as he's walking back, the father's looking out and he sees him. And he sees him out the window and says, here's my son. And he comes running to him and he gives him everything. He gives him the coat, the ring, the shoes. And he says, hey! Go get a fattened animal. Cook them up because we're having a party tonight. Gather everybody. There's joy tonight. And the son has been shown so much love right now. And the older son who's out faithful in the field as every day as before that comes back home and he see, hears this music and he sees this people and this joy. He's like, what's going on? And as he crawls a little closer to the room, he sees, hey, there's my brother. What's going on here? And he finds out that a party is being thrown for his younger brother, who was a wayward son. And he calls the dad. He says, Dad, I'm the faithful son. Haven't I worked your fields all of this time? Haven't I been the good one that stayed by your side? Haven't squandered your wealth? Where's my party? Why does he get the good thing? And there was this injustice that was creeping up in his heart. And the father goes, son, all that is mine is yours. You have everything that I have. But we had to rejoice because your brother, he was dead. Now he's come alive. He was lost. And now he's been found. And he consoles his elder son. Of course, you can feel the emotion and understand the dynamic of this situation. So coming back to our passage. When Peter looked into the crowd that day, he didn't see undeserving murderers. Because I think it would be easy to see that. When Peter looked into the crowd that day, he saw grace needing lost people. And there we see that crucial, crucial shift, that difference. A change in attitude that frames how we speak to people. That frames how we act towards people. And it's what motivates us to be able to look upon people with compassion. People that have wronged us. People that have wronged the people we love. And Peter standing up that day with the man healed and the throng surrounding him saying, You guys crucified Jesus. If it wasn't for you, That wouldn't have happened. But he saw things in a different lens. It wasn't murderers that he saw. He saw people that needed love and compassion. Because you acted in ignorance, he said. I know it. You didn't even know what you were doing. And you acted in ignorance. But I want you to know that God had planned it all along. And actually, that happened to him because it was actually for you first. When God allowed Jesus to go through all of that, he thought about you. And he's thinking about you now. And he began to speak a message of grace and compassion that times of refreshing would come over them. That challenges me. Because if I was a Peter or a John on that particular day, I I would be tempted. I mean, 
they hurled judgment and death upon a person that I'd loved and followed from the beginning. And I was a believer from the beginning. You guys, you guys, only after the concept was proven, now you guys are coming on. And, you know, there, there could have been a sense of superiority there, a sense of judgment being thrown and hurled at this group. And yet there was none of that in Peter's heart and mind and in his words. Because there was something that Peter understood. That salvation is given to people and none of us are worthy of it, including him. I can imagine he would only have to recollect just weeks or months when he saw his own disgust of his own life, of his own rejections of Jesus. And so I hope this frames our lives in a good way. I hope that what we see from this particular passage of how Peter and John responded to this group that was assembled that day around that temple, I hope it could really inform how we treat people, how we look upon people, that we will cross paths with people that we love, but we will most inevitably cross paths with people that disgust us, that hurt us, and to be able to look upon people with a, a lens that says, wait a minute, I'm going to look with compassion and empathy and see you through the lens of grace. Because that's really how I want to end today. And as the praise team comes back, I want to end by saying this, that salvation is not based on fairness or merit, but on grace in Jesus. And that, that's for all of us, isn't it? That we are all saved based on grace because none of us deserve that. We cannot do something to say, now I have earned a spot in heaven. That if God says, I save you, it is really because He has shown mercy and given us grace. And that's for all of us. None of us are good enough for entrance into heaven on our own. And so salvation is not based on fairness or merit. But I also want to say this. That our words and our treatment of others should also not be based on fairness or merit, but on grace and on Jesus. How does that frame how we work with people, how we speak with people, how we interact with them? I hope it does so in a way where you can see and truly understand what Peter had to emotionally go through that particular day when he was speaking to that group. May that impact our lives and our livelihood in profound ways going forward. Amen?